Well, if you have your Bible, then turn with me to Acts chapter 6, verse 1 to 7. And if you're new to Sunday at 6, we are currently working our way through Acts uh, very slowly. We started back in May, and we are on chapter 6. So we obviously had a little break over Christmas. So just as a little quick recap of Acts in about two sentences. Uh, It's a book in the New Testament. It's the first to follow on from the Gospels or the stories of Jesus' life. And it was written by one of those Gospel writers called Luke. And what it does is it tells us the, uh, about the days and the weeks after Jesus' death and resurrection um, as he ascends into heaven. And then it tells us about the birth of the early church. So we kicked off with the ascension of Jesus, and then we looked at Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit was poured out on the apostles. And then we had a great few weeks looking at the stories of the amazing signs and wonders that were performed uh, by the apostles through the power of the Holy Spirit. And uh, just incredible numbers of people being saved. And then chapter 4 and 5, we start to see how the apostles faced persecution uh, and how they were amazingly resilient in their faith and how that's an incredible encouragement for us as we live out uh, and be witnesses in our day-to-day lives. And so chapter 6, 1 to 7. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon. It's always easier when you're reading it in your head, isn't it? (laughs) Parmenas and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert of Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So when I first read this passage this week, uh, a number of things immediately came to mind. The first one was just how incredibly big a change of pace this felt. (laughs) No, we just had just drama after drama at the start of Acts. You know, Jesus has literally ascended into heaven, and we turn the page, and the Holy Spirit comes, and there's tongues of fire on their heads. And then we turn the page, and Peter and John go up to the temple, and they walk past a lame man, and he's instantly healed. And then they're standing up and proclaiming their faith, and then suddenly we're talking about bread. (laughs) It just feels a little bit of a change of pace. And then the second thing that came to my mind was it kind of felt like the 12 were a little bit full of themselves. Uh, quote, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Uh-uh. <laughs> to me, that kind of read, we are so important, we are far more superior to you, that we will not be dishing out the bread. We will be proclaiming the word of God. Uh, but as we look closer, and hopefully throughout this evening, we'll see that that is totally not what they were saying at all. And they're actually saying the complete opposite. They, they valued this so much that they chose seven people to oversee it. 
and there was uh, specific requirements for these people. They had to be full of faith and the spirit and wisdom. And once they were chosen, they, they commissioned them. They laid their hands on them and prayed for them because it was such a big responsibility. And why? Well, I think because food and hospitality is such a big part of Jesus' life that the disciples also valued it so much. So what can we learn from Jesus and the way of the apostles lived uh, that made food and hospitality so important? And to look at this, I want to talk about four very quick points uh, around gathering around the table and what it represents and offers to us as followers of Christ. And if you want to explore more, then a guy called Tim Chester has been super helpful in my study. There's a great book called A Meal with Jesus um, that has shaped a lot of these thoughts. So if you like reading, go for it. So number one, firstly, the table was Jesus' idea. The Gospel of Luke is full of stories about Jesus around a table and sharing food. Hospitality was so key to the way that Jesus did mission and discipleship. New Testament scholar Robert Karras says that in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming away from a meal. So much so that his enemies actually accuse him of being a glutton and a drunkard. So a few of these examples. In Luke 5, Jesus eats with the tax collectors and the sinners at the home of Levi. In Luke 7, Jesus is anointed at the home of Simon the Pharisee during a meal. In Luke 9, Jesus feeds the 5,000. In Luke 10, Jesus eats at the home of Mary and Martha. In Luke 11, Jesus condemns the Pharisees and teachers of the law at a meal. In Luke 14, Jesus is at a meal when he urges people to invite the poor to their meals rather than their friends. In Luke 19, Jesus invites himself to dinner with Zacchaeus. In, in Luke 22, we have the account of the Last Supper. And in Luke 24, the risen Christ has a meal with two disciples on the road to Emmaus and later eats fish with the disciples in Jerusalem. Tim Chester points out that in the New Testament, the phrase, the Son of Man, is actually mentioned three times, or sort of completed. So the phrase, the Son of Man came, uh, is completed three times. The first of these is in Mark 10. It says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The second of these is in Luke 19. It says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And both of these are statements of purpose. They're why Jesus came. To seek and to save the lost and to serve, not be served. But the final one is in Luke 7. And instead of a statement of purpose, it's a statement of method. And it says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. He came to seek and save the lost. How? Eating and drinking. So, the table was Jesus' idea. And secondly, the table is a place for community. Community wraps up the whole story of the Bible. Right from page one, we read God speaking man into existence. He said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and all over the creatures that move along the ground. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. And after he created Adam, he said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And this is before sin has entered the world. It is in our DNA to be so wrapped up in community that it is not good for man to be alone. 
Jesus himself, you know, the holy son of God, with all of the power of heaven behind him, chose to do his life and ministry with 12 friends. Don't think he needed to. The disciples continued to model Jesus' view of community and the way they established themselves as a community of believers. In Acts 2, we read that um, just after Peter preaches and 3,000 people come to faith, uh, we read, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone they had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Opening ourselves up and being real with people uh, is never easy and it can be an incredibly scary thing. But doing it around a table, there's something about that that makes it a lot easier. There's something about sitting down with a cup of coffee and a pastry that creates the perfect environment for intimacy and community. For us at home, we are terrible at this. About 90% of our dinners are spent in front of the TV uh, watching Friends for about the 20th time. And it's so tempting when you come home from work and you're tired and you're hangry and you just need a bit of space to, to tune out from each other and tune into something else. But actually it's the times when we do sit at the dining table that we have conversations and they're conversations that wouldn't happen if we just sat on the sofa and watched the TV. It forces us to solve issues and to face the day-to-day -day life together. Tim Chester says, unresolved conflict can't be ignored when we gather around the meal table. You can't eat in silence without realizing there's an issue to address. And some of us find this a lot easier than others. Um, I grew up in a family of introverts and every meal was around the table, but we just all sat in silence and it was brilliant. <laughs> so, uh, it was a bit of a shock for Robin coming into our family. Yeah, it was great. So I've had to learn, you know, to, to open up and, and share my life and build community around a table. And there's a very big difference between hospitality and entertainment. When we were dating, we were sort of talking about what we wanted our life and marriage to be and what we wanted to focus on. And for us, we really felt this word hospitality. And we wanted to create a safe space and a place where people could have a meal and a coffee and just feel refreshed. And six years later, we're incredibly grateful to have a house and we have had very few people over for dinner. And we found ourselves slipping into this mindset of, oh, we need to do this. We need to paint that wall. We need to decorate our house. We need to clean. We need to make sure that our lives are in check before we can have people over. And it's incredibly tempting to get into this Instagram mindset where everything is perfect and there's fresh bread on the table and all of these things. And that is just entertainment. Uh, and uh, in Luke 10, we see Jesus encountering this mindset. And he says, as Jesus and his disciples are on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. 
But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Hospitality is an open door, come as you are policy. It's real, authentic, and messy. Its primary focus isn't the food or the entertainment or the environment, but the community that's formed around a table. Chester goes on, he says, hospitality involves welcoming, creating space, listening, paying attention, and providing. Meals slow things down. Some of us don't like that. We like to get things done, but meals force you to be people-orientated instead of task-orientated. Sharing a meal is not the only way to build relationship, but it's number one on the list. So maybe this week, that's a challenge for us. Maybe there's someone that we could invite around for coffee, or uh, if you don't have the means to do that, then do what Jesus did and just invite yourself around someone else's house. Uh, what's my address? It's confidential. <laughs> I got to clean. <laughs> or maybe it's the men's breakfast or mosaic or a space that we've created in church that allows you to come and build that community around the table. So point three, the table is a place for hope. In Luke 5, we read a story where Jesus calls a tax collector called Levi. It says, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him, and Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who belonged to their sect, complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In Jesus' day, tax collectors were alongside prostitutes as the very worst of the worst. It was their job to collect taxes on behalf of Rome, but they would then add their own tax on top of that, and that was how they got all of their money. It's hard to explain how much of a social outcast a tax collector was. They were viewed as traitors, and to even think of eating with one was unimaginable. And here we find Jesus attending a banquet alongside a large crowd of tax collectors and others. Jesus didn't wait for people to change before he welcomed them into the table. He sought them out, called them to follow him, and sat and ate a meal with them. I wonder what was said around that table. Luke doesn't go into detail, but I doubt Jesus stood up and delivered a sermon I reckon they laughed, I reckon they joked, I reckon they asked questions, they answered questions. Sometimes those sort of surface-level questions and occasionally those deep questions that make everyone sort of sit and get quiet. Probably very similar to any other meal that we share with our friends. In Luke 7, we read another story. It says, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume, and she stood behind him at his feet weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. 
Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, and that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. A denarii was about a day's worth of wages. So sort of one person, sort of several months of wages, another one, a couple of years. Where are we? Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will he love more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. And he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. In this story, we read about a Pharisee who invited Jesus to have dinner. And he's just a, a very poor host in first century Israel. Foot washing was, in, was very common, sort of dirt tracks and open-toed sandals. You can probably see why. Um, and it was very rude not to wash the feet of your guest. It was also common to, to greet a guest with a kiss and if you have money to, to put oil on their head. But the Pharisee does none of these things. Yet a sinful woman has the courage to come to the house of a Pharisee, wipe Jesus' feet with her tears, to not kiss his head, but to kiss his feet, and then pour perfume, which is far more expensive than oil, over his feet. Suddenly the sinful and uninvited guest plays the role of the host. She meets Jesus exactly as she is, around a table, and leaves in peace, knowing that her sins have been forgiven. The table is a place for hope and grace to be put into action. It's a practical way. In a practical way, a meal meets a physical need. But gathering around a table and sharing community together meets a deeper emotional and spiritual need that everyone in the world has in them. In our post-Christian world where people are very skeptical, opening up our homes to our unbelieving friends, meeting their needs, and offering a place for them to feel welcomed and feel like they can belong can be so countercultural it may lead people to wonder if there's more to love. I'm not saying that we should invite people in with the intention of shoving the Bible down their throat. Not at all. The Bible says, oh, sorry, we are called to love, to, to love God and to one, love one another. The primary focus has to be to love people. The Bible says, greater love than this, to lay down, uh, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And maybe number two on that list is to make them a cup of coffee and a croissant. Tim Chester summarizes it all by saying, the marginalized cease to be marginal when they are included around a meal table. The lonely cease to be lonely. The aliens cease to be alien, and strangers become friends. 
So finally, the table is a place to remember. I find it perfect that Jesus, who spent so much of his life and ministry around the table, it all culminated in one final meal around the table with his disciples the night before he was betrayed. In Luke 22, we read the story. When the hour came, Luke and his, uh, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you that I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant for my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The one thing that Jesus asked us to do to remember him is to gather around the table and eat and drink. Obviously, this meal is radically different to any other meal we share, not only in its contents, but in the reverence that we're called to attend it with. But in its simplest form, it's a community of believers coming together around a table to reflect and remember the death of Jesus. We all come from different cultures, different families of origin, with our own struggles and our own sins, and we gather around the same table knowing that we are free by grace. So maybe we do just that. We share communion together around little tables, little huddles. So maybe if we just split off into little groups, and uh, if you want to help yourself to the bread and wine, and then we'll, um, we'll lead to communion together. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat in this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen.